We are working our way through Galatians, and we're in the meat of the book right now. And Paul is in this battle, fighting for the pure gospel, no additives. And we're kind of right in the meat of it. This is like round three of this title fight. You know, Paul planted these churches in Galatia and kind of the nemesis, you know, in the other corner, if you will, are what we come to know as the Judaizers, the ones saying, yes, Jesus, but Jesus plus. You can believe in Jesus, but you need some religion in there. So it's this title fight, and Paul is battling, you know, in this corner, you know, coming from Jerusalem, the surgeons of circumcision, but sorry, I got carried away my bad, right? Right? And so here they are, the Judaizers. And Paul, at this point in the letter, is chomping at the bit. He's coming out swinging. He's going to do everything he can for them to cling to the pure gospel. You have Paul with the gospel in the other corner just waiting for that bell to ring. And he's like, that false gospel, I'm going to snap that like Conor McGregor's ankle. You know, you see it? It was gross. He snapped his leg. Ugh. Right? That's where we find ourselves, right in this battle for the hearts and minds of the Galatians. But let's be clear, that battle is raging today. And you need to be clear, we need to understand, we start on the side of law, and our default is the Judaizers. The great reformer Martin Luther said it that way, religion is the default mode of the human heart. That's the world we live in, is works. You gotta earn your love, you gotta earn respect. You gotta do things to be accepted in this world. That's where all of us start, and that's where all of us start in our relationship with God, is in the corner between this battle, between faith and works, between grace and law. We start in this corner. And I've seen this true so much in my own life. I often ask people this. You know, okay, someone comes up to you, I want you to think about the situation like, hey, don't you go to church? I see you got that little R sticker on your car. I mean, I, I want to be a Christian. How do, how do, what do I got to do to become a Christian? What would you tell them? Most of us, the most common answer I hear is you would give them law. You'd give them religion. Well, I guess... Uh, you should probably start going to church, maybe start reading your Bible, I guess start listening to like 95.5, the Fishmore and Lynn Hauser, I don't know, you know, like you'd give them a bunch of stuff to do. That's law, right? What do I got to do to become a Christian? You tell them the things they need to do. Oftentimes that's our default to give law. The answer that Paul gives us is what do I got to do? It's nothing. You can't do anything. You'll never deserve it. Have a good one. No, you, you finish with the gospel, right? You can't, but Jesus did. And Jesus lived the life that you couldn't. He died the death you deserve. Put your faith in him. And that's the battle we find ourselves. And Paul, for the Galatians and for our hearts and minds, are pleading, please don't go to religion. A lot of times, you know, you say that to people like, oh, I'm a Christian. They'll say, I'm not religious. I will most often refer, neither am I. And I'd go a step further. You can't be religious and be a Christian. It's impossible. 
If you're defining religion, the stuff you do to make God love you, it's impossible. It's a perversion of the pure gospel. And if you pervert it, you take all the power out of it. And Paul is going to fight for our hearts as he did the Galatians. Please cling to the pure gospel. So we are kind of in round three of this battle. Kind of Pastor did a great job as he's kind of going through this fight. And if you're following along in your own Bibles, it's Galatians 3. In verse 15, but if you don't, I will as always have it on the screen, so please follow along as I read. So Galatians 3, verse 15, kind of it's a little bit longer of a passage. He dives in. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you all. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Here he is just battling through this. He does a couple things in this passage between getting us to reject just religion and embrace a relationship of faith and grace. He desperately wants them to reject the law. Then you see in the middle, he helps them understand the law, but ultimately the goal is to be freed from the law. And that's where we're going kind of with the rest of our time to reject religion and the law, but understand its place, but ultimately to be freed from it. 
Again, I don't know if you saw, it's a longer passage. Paul is just doing everything he can, throwing everything he can for them not to believe this. And his first point, man, just a smooth jab, just connects right on the bridge of their nose, and it's almost crippling if you kind of follow kind of his line of argument. So to reject the law, first he helps them to see. Faith came first, and therefore it is foremost. This is what I mean. He says, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. And by first, I mean chronologically first faith came. And God's first covenant came by faith, and that can't be changed later. He's telling us what all of us already know. You can't triple stamp a double stamp, right? Like, it's already been stamped and sealed. You can't come back and change it. We get that, right? But to understand kind of the flow of the argument, you got to understand a little bit of salvation history. And I had Gary, the director of worship, put together this little video. See, Genesis 3, everything gets ruined. Sin enters the world, and redemption begins with Abraham by faith. And it's not till 430 years later that Moses comes on the scene. This is where the law is introduced, the Ten Commandments. And that era covers until Jesus comes. And a crucial part of the argument of what he's doing here is tying Jesus directly back to Abraham in the original covenant. That's the flow of his argument. It started with Abraham, then the law comes later. Then there's the era of the law, and then Jesus. Remember that offspring, offsprings? You know, that was that idea that Jesus, the singular offspring, was the fulfillment of the covenant. These are kind of the major covenants as you look at the history of salvation. It starts with the Abrahamic, the Mo- Moses' covenant, and then to the Mosaic covenant to Jesus. But the point he's making is Abraham and faith came first. You read Moses in light of Abraham, not vice versa. It doesn't make sense, and that's what they're trying to do. That's when he gets in that idea of kind of just like our human example of contracts. Like Genesis 1, God sets up this perfect world. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve start just mashing on some Granny Smiths. There goes the neighborhood, ruin everything. And then, early in Genesis, God's plan of redemption begins with Abraham. That's a crucial verse, Genesis 15, 6. The gospel of faith and grace is preached there. Abraham believed God and was credited as righteousness. He didn't earn it. It's by faith and grace. When Moses comes later... That doesn't change that it was always by promise. And he used that idea of contracts I think we all get, right? If you contracted somebody, you know, to put on a roof on your house for 10 grand, and you signed the contract, and they came back later and said, hey, we decided to charge you 20 grand. Are you cool with that? No! You're going to say, here's the deal. We kind of signed it. So, I've had this happen. It's not fun. You can judge me if you want, but I remember getting lawn care done. So, I remember I had three applications so I signed a contract to have three applications on my lawn, and they were going to, you know, weed and feed, all that. And then after that, that was our original agreement. They decided they wanted to change our agreement. 
So sometime in that winter, they gave me a new contract, which I didn't agree to, saying I'm now an annual every year customer, not just three applications. So like the next spring, I get a call from my wife like, uh, somebody's here like working on the lawn. I'm like, well, what are they doing here? She's like, that's why I'm calling you. I'm like, okay. And so I called them back and then walked through this principle like you can't change a contract. I quoted the clown from a living color. I'm like, homie, don't play that. Like our original deal was three applications. You can't change that later and change the contract. It doesn't work that way. That's a huge part of his point. Listen, God's plan in redemptive history has always been faith and grace and a promise of God. Just because law and Moses came later doesn't change that. The superior covenant is Abraham, the covenant of faith. You got to understand law and Moses in light of Abraham because that's what he ties Jesus back to, that original covenant. Just because law came later doesn't annul that contract. Secondly, so faith is superior, and he makes the point where law is inferior. Now just another devastating just body shot to religion. Listen to what religion does and why it's inferior. He says, look, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So he's commenting here, so the Old Testament Mosaic law, he's talking about its delivery system, but he's also talking about the distance it creates between us and God. So Jewish tradition tells us, and the New Testament affirms, that the angels kind of played a part in giving us the law. We don't know exactly what that is. But the point is clear enough. Like, so whatever employment you have, if one of the other managers sends you an email like, hey, I heard from the boss, he, want to make, he wants to make sure this next pitch goes well, you kind of take that as, okay, that was from the boss. Does that feel any different then the boss coming down from whatever penthouse he is on high and coming to your office, like, and you look and it's the boss, like, which one carries more weight? It's hearing it from the boss man, right? Like, that's the point he's making. So that covenant, that was kind of like an email from another manager. This was directly from God. This covenant, the law is inferior, and it also required kind of this intermediary. So if you remember Old Testament enough, the plan really revolved around Moses. So the plan was the messed up people and the golden calves and all their craziness in this world and the holy God on high, their plan to connect with them is to send up an intermediary. So Moses goes up on the mountain. So Moses connects with God and then Moses tells the people about God. That's never part of God's design for you not to be able to go directly to him. And how many people, how many of us still fall with that religious mentality, right? Maybe even as we sit here, the plan to go to church is, oh, pastors, they go hear from God, and then they come and tell other people what God said. I beg of you, don't let that be your plan. God wants that's the reformation, the priesthood of all believers. You don't need a priest to go to God. You don't need an intermediary. You can directly connect with God. That's not how the law was. And that's not God's design. For you to have a go-between between him and you. He wants to get rid of that distance. And anything, any religion like that is inferior. 
Another point that he goes with. The law was temporary. So as you understand kind of where law comes in, know that it was temporary. So look what he says here. As long as he is a child, he is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So kind of that gap, right? He goes from Abraham to Moses, and from Moses to Jesus, he kind of says that's like when you were a child. He refers to that as a child when you were a minor, and then you come of age. He said the law was kind of like a babysitter, and it, we don't really have equivalents like that, you know, in our society. So initially I thought of like Uncle Argyle from Braveheart, you know, I'm your Uncle Argyle, you know. Remember that guy? Yeah, he, he was kind of there to just kind of see William Wallace until he got to adulthood. So he's, that, that's what he says. He's like, look, the law period was like when you were a child and you needed a babysitter. But it was never meant to live forever. He said, look, until the date set by your father. Say until, church. Until. Now say it real annoying like I'm saying. Until. Okay? There was an end date. It was never meant to carry on forever. The Mosaic Covenant is like your milk and your meat. It expires, right? You look on the side, you see that expiration date, right? Sell by, use by. The Mosaic Milk Jug, if you read the side, says, used by Jesus. After that, this spoils. You know, use or freeze by the first Christmas. It's no good after that. That's the point he's making. The law, the Mosaic Covenant, was temporary. So he's doing all that he can. Listen, it was never a part of God's design. God never meant for you to earn his love. That was never part of the plan. That you go do enough religious things and do enough church things and read your Bible enough for God to love you. He's just beating that down. Stop turning to religion is your hope. I beg you, the law is inferior and he curb stamps the law and says, listen, don't Look for that for hope. I think he rightfully checks himself, right? He makes a strong case why reject religion and law as your salvation. But he probably anticipates a good question. Okay, wait a minute. As we've just been like beating up the law, isn't that a part of the Bible? Like, isn't Moses, like, wasn't he, like, God's guy for a while? Like, did he pull Abraham and Jesus so close that Moses is just, like, that awkward third wheel, and they're just, like, making fun of him? Like, I bet you Moses has ticks in his beard. Man, we hate that guy. No, Moses was a part of God's plan. So we have to understand, okay, it never meant to save us. What, then, is the purpose of the law? So let's move there. How do we understand the law? kind of hitting at this. So as he's bashing it down, understand that it's temporary, but understand that doesn't mean contrary. That's the question he answers, right? Is the law then contrary to the promises of God if it's so bad? He says, certainly not. It's temporary, but it's not contrary. It complements Jesus. It doesn't contradict what Jesus came to do. So even on a big scale, as you think through Old Testament and New Testament, you ever heard, okay, the New Testament is a gospel of grace, and the Old Testament, and that's a God of wrath. Anybody ever heard that? 
then raise your hand, Josh, if you heard it. I, that's the, the hand thing. Right? He says, look, they're not contradictory. And I can kind of prove this to you. So growing up, if at any point in your life you had a curfew, raise your hand. Okay? Put your hand down. Now, if you're over 25, I want you to raise your hand if you still have a curfew. There's always somebody. You know it's coming. You know it's coming. What do you mean? Are your parents different parents? One's a, a parent of wrath and now they're a parent of grace? Doesn't that contradict? Now you... No. Raise your hand if at any point in your life you had a babysitter. You had somebody watch you. Put your hand down. If you're 25 and you still require a babysitter, raise your hand. I know it's coming. Just do it. No? Okay. What do you mean? How do you not need a babysitter anymore? Okay. It had a point for a certain time. That point doesn't exist anymore. I don't understand why that's so hard to understand. God doesn't contradict himself because it used to be. No, the law served a purpose. That purpose has expired. And that purpose, and this is key, it served a purpose, just not one to save. So you've got to understand, and even our lives as we look at religion, okay, yeah, they don't save us. But they have a purpose, just not a salvific one. I think you can think of the covenants this way. You know, it's almost like if you ever go to a concert, right, there's an opening band. So who here recalls Midnight and the Lemon Boys? Nobody, right? Apparently, Midnight and the Lemon Boys opened up for U2 at some point. Now, that's how you got to see it. I think Paul kind of sees like Moses is like the opening act for the real show, right? Like, you're not going to Taylor Swift to see whoever's opening up. You're there to see Tay-Tay, right? Like, that's the real show, and that's kind of the point he's making. Like, Jesus is the real act. Jesus is what it's all about. Now, yes, there was opening bands that, you know, I think part of the reason sometimes is the, they pick bad bands, so you're really excited for the good band to come out. That's kind of a little bit the dynamics going on. Part of Moses is preparing people to experience Christ. So that time ended. But then even more, he goes on to help them see it this way. So it's temporary, not contrary, but he helps them understand the category. Look, the law helps us, but it doesn't help save us. So part of what's going on here, what place with that, you've got to understand what category we're talking about. We're talking about what saves us. Okay, do our works matter? No. Does it mean they don't matter at all? Well, of course not. They matter, just not to save us. So the law had its place, but it was never meant to save you. Why then? The law, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come, and it was to imprison everything under sin. That, that word, I think, helps kind of see some of the point of what the law was. It was to bring, some put even say, increased transgressions. So that word increased transgression really gets us to the point that you are aware when you're doing something wrong. Like you can kind of be in sin and being wrong and do that before you transgress to where now you know you're wrong. It's like if you have kids... 
you're driving kids in the back seat. You know, you're on a long road trip. It's like the Wild West back there, right? I mean, their kids, they're just, ah, you know, it's just crazy, right? And then at some point, you introduce the mosaic, you introduce the law, you pull over, right? Like, all right. If anybody touches anybody, I'm going to call upon the wrath from heaven. Like, don't touch anybody. If you do, you're in your room till June. I don't care if you missed the entire final season of This Is Us. You are, you know, like, that's when, that's the law, right? Because now, that next wet willy, yeah, like, now it's on. You done messed up, you know, right? That's a part of what the law did. Now, when, you, when they're mistreating each other, are they wrong? Yes. But now when you say the expectations, now they clearly know they're falling short. It causes, you know, it gives a measurement, therefore, of how to punish. That's why I laugh. You know, Pastor Rick mentioned this. Like, we want to push the Ten Commandments, the law in schools. What does it do? It brings about awareness of death, and it brings condemnation. Like, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't push it. Like, that's what the law does. The law was never meant to save. It was meant not to save us, but to show us our need to be saved. I can prove this to you with our own laws. Do stop signs and speed limit signs make people good drivers? Church, it's an easy one. No! Laws don't make you good. And how many people we look to laws and rules to make us good? They just show us that we're bad. They just show us our need. So the whole point, this is kind of how I see kind of how Paul looks at these covenants. So when our life is a mess, God comes in and says, look, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to make this right. And you can't deserve it. You can't earn it. I'm going to do it because I'm loving. And I promise to continue to love you then why the Mosaic law? I think God knows, one, that we need to realize how sick we are. It's only the sick that go to a doctor, and he's like, look, I'm going to give you all these rules that you can never keep, and that is the standard, and you're going to realize how much you need me. And I think God also knows that religion is the default mode of the human heart. And all of us wired to try to please God and to try to prove ourselves to him so that he'll love us. And so here's what I think God did. I'm going to restore you by grace. But it's hard for you to accept grace and you're going to lie to yourself and think you can fix it. So I'm going to take the next 2,000 years to show you, you can't fix yourself. You can't be the person God wants you to be. And you may feel like you can do it. So, okay, you make your case. I feel like I can be that good person. Okay, you have your feelings. You know what I have? Every soul from entire human history, Jesus Christ and his eternal word, which one you betting on? You can't do it. You can't do it. And he took 2,000 years to show us and give us like the best I told you show of all time, right? Like, look, you can't. Do you understand it's by grace? And so he wants them to reject the law, but understand it. But ultimately, the goal then is to be freed from the law. 
Stop thinking that you can turn to your religion and your religious performance to make God love you. You can't, you won't. Part of how we pursue God, what we choose to pursue God, is tied to how we view God. And this is where the passage ends. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If God is just your judge, you're going to try to keep the law. If God is your father, you're going to understand that grace and faith is your only hope. When Jesus steps on the scene and prays our father, we get so used to that because, oh, our father who art in heaven. Understand this. Listen to what this scholar says when Jesus prays our father. Nowhere in the entire in the entire wealth of devotional literature produced by ancient Judaism do we find Abba used as a way of addressing God. The pious Jew knew too much of the great gap between God and humanity to be free to address God with the familiar word used in everyday family life. When we pray our Father, we need to understand how radical that was. Never in human history did someone say, we can connect with God like our Father. It was scandalous when Jesus did it, and it's unthinkable for us. That the God who created the world can love me like my dad, like the way I love my kids, that's the way God feels about me? Are you crazy? And that's not our default. And as an adoptive dad... That hits me. Look, you need to put your faith in Jesus. And he adopts you as your son, as a daughter. And he becomes your father. To understand that, the peace that it would come when you adopt, you literally seal it. And you push down and secure. And look in that moment. What is my son doing to deserve that? Nothing. He's looking fresh though, isn't he? He's looking smooth and crispy. He's not even standing. He does nothing. There's nothing he can do in that moment. And I promise you, he's showered with all the love that I have. Not because he deserves it. There's nothing he could do to deserve it. And here, we doubt God's love for us. Why? Because we think God loves us based on our performance. What's the problem? Our performance falters. And we live our life on this crazy ride of religion of he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And when we fail, we think God's love for us fails. That is the death of religion. You can cling to the promise of God's love for you because your performance fails, but God's promise never does.
if it is based off the promise of God, it never wanes, it never falters. You can rest in the security of God's love for you when you understand he's your father. He's not your prison guard trying to keep you in line. Your relationship with him is not one of fear and guilt. Does that look like fear and guilt? Look at my daughter's smile. It is one of joy and intimacy. It is one of full sonship. If you really are, put your faith in him, a child of God. The entire kingdom is at your disposal. Why do we live in fear? We can rest that God feels that way about you. I think of that song all the time, and I think of singing to my son, pride is not the word I'm looking for. There's so much more in me now. Do you understand God isn't just proud of you? God loves you, like desperately with the joyous love of a father. So you need to understand how you view God. He's not just a teacher who's supposed to teach you the right ways of life. He's not just a judge waiting for you to step out of line so he can punish you. That's the law. He's your father. To see him that way is to embrace grace. But so many need to take one more step. Maybe your father was more like a judge and a prison warden, and maybe you had distance with your relationship with your father. You need to understand God is your father, but he's a good father. He loves you with an intimacy, and I want you this week to try this, to pray and address him as dad. That kind of intimacy. Will you pray with me now? God, as we address you, it comes so naturally to refer to you as God and creator. And that is true. But to cry out to you as our dad in heaven, God, it's so hard. And even in this passage, it says, the spirit cries out, Abba, Father. God, would you help us? to believe that, that you're our father, that you're our dad, and that you desperately love us by grace through faith. In Jesus' name, amen.